Hall of Fame Village Media and the Pro Football Hall of Fame present Football Heaven. Larry was at the, the grand opening of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Which one? <laughs> I got thrown out twice. <laughs> he got thrown, so he's the only Hall of Famer that's been thrown out of the Hall of Fame twice. Get out. What were you doing that you got thrown out? Sneaking in. Sneaking in. <laughs> Welcome to Football Heaven. I'm your host, Aditi Kinkabwala. I am joined by the always fabulous Joe Horrigan, by the brilliant John Kendall, both of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And we are taking our weekly exploratory tour through one of the most fascinating stories in football history. This week, with the help of Larry Zonka, Larry Little, Paul Warfield, we are going to examine the one and only undefeated team in the history of the National Football League. And Joe, before I bring you in, John, I think you're wearing gloves. And I think you're wearing gloves because you might have something super special behind you. Is that a notebook? Is that really a notebook? Got a couple things here. You know, I'm sitting in the Ralph Wilson Jr. Pro Football Research and Preservation Center, the archives of the Pro Football Hall of Fame here in Canton, Ohio. And just over my shoulder, I've got Don Shula's notebooks that he used throughout his career uh, coaching the Miami Dolphins. We've got a game ball from the undefeated season, the Super, uh, Super Bowl Seven game program here. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, football. Uh, but one of the the real special pieces that we have in our collection that I wanted to show everybody are these these eyeglasses, and these are Bob Greasy's eyeglasses that he wore throughout his career. Um, and, wait a minute, and wait a minute. Those, the, aren't, those aren't the glasses that his son ribbed him on at his induction, are they? They are. They are the exact ones. And, and Brian always told his dad that that was as close as he would get to the Pro Football Hall of Fame was having his eyeglasses on display here. And, uh, you know, when, when Bob got up on the podium to deliver his enshrinement speech, his, his comment to Brian was, in your face, Brian. And, uh, you know, always a, a a fun enshrinement speech to go back and listen to. Uh, also, over my uh, other shoulder here, we've got the the vinyl record of the 1972 season. And uh, while we have never actually broken out a record player and listened to it, it is the exciting play-by-play, game-by-game -play, um, -game highlights of the World Championship 1972 Miami Dolphins. So. Uh, vinyl record here in the Pro Football Hall of Fame as well. All right, Joe, before we get to the guys and we have them take us through the unfolding of that season and how it was made possible, let's just start with Greasy. When you started the season, did you think this is a guy that's going to lead a team to ultimate greatness? Well, not only did I not think that, but the, I think the media, uh, as they always said, the Dolphins – almost to a man have said they were disrespected. Even going to the Super Bowl, they were disrespected. They just didn't think these guys could do it. And in, or in uh, Bob Greasy's case, he almost didn't because he missed some games because he was injured. And Earl Morrill filled in and, and carried the team on his back until uh, Bob was ready to come back during the playoffs. So it was a lot of drama there. No one thought they were going to do it. And, you know, when I look back at it, the things that I think about are, are the games that were close. I mean, these, these weren't, this wasn't a team that dominated in every game. It was like a different player stepped up in each game and made the difference, which is really what teamwork is all about. And when Earl Merle came in, you know, I, I thought the season, frankly, was over, and it was anything but. 
Okay, Joe, before we get any further in this discussion on the 1972 Dolphins, mm -hmm. we are so fortunate to be joined by the fabulous Paul Warfield, who needs to dispel or maybe verify one of the most important pieces of legend around that team. Mr. Warfield, mm -hmm. is it true that you drink champagne every single year <laughs> when the last undefeated team loses? No. <laughs> really? Yes, that is true. Um, the story grew and became a legend uh, a few years after the undefeated season because a couple of my former teammates lived in the same residential area in South Florida, and they would get together. But the legend even grew enormously when the press got involved and learned about this, that it was a a gathering of numerous former Miami Dolphins players. But, uh, yeah, they were neighbors, and uh, they uh, enjoyed that celebration, and it was a remarkable one. You know, that team was so unique in the sense of, of, of how it was put together. A young team, and Don Shula, a young coach. You know, it was something that, that you know, you, we've always said about Don Shuley, he, he won with a running game and he won with a passing game. But in that particular year, you had this, this offense, this running uh, Larry Zonka, Mercury Morris, Jim Kick, and on the outside with the speed was this Paul Warfield. And, and Larry Zonka has said to me many times, he says, I owe every, every one of my carries, I owe an extra yard to, to Paul Warfield because the, the linebackers had to play deep. He says, the, to respect his speed. So he says, my first three yards were gifts. <laughs> so, you know, tell us a little bit about how that, that balance of, of the running game and your speed and, and the field generalship of not only uh, Bob Greasy, but Earl Morrill. Well, there was a culmination of a number of parts that made that uh, team so effective and uh, at the championship level and Certainly, it was a maturational uh, development of that team. Uh, when I arrived there in 1970, it was an expansion team out of the what I refer to old American Football League, which was considered by the so-called experts to be mm -hmm. not quite on par with the National Football League. And um, in, it was, I believe, came together as a franchise in somewhere around 1966. And during that first three years or so of play, they had never won more than three games in any season. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was quite a feat for them in just three short years, the first year that Don Shula arrived on the scene to completely reverse their trend of losing ineptness and all of the things that go along with that and become a divisional participant in postseason play. Right. So the record was 10-4 and four that first year. The second year, I forget what the numbers were precisely, but 10-4 uh, and four the first year, we made it to the playoffs. The second year, we go to the Super Bowl. The third year, we win the Super Bowl with an undefeated season. We go back the fourth year with a second consecutive Super Bowl win. And so the climb to the championship level occurred in a very short period of time, but it was amazing, and it occurred primarily because of a great coach, uh, players who wanted to change their reputation of mm -hmm. being a cast-off team, uh, good players that you mentioned who would ultimately become Hall of Fame players such as Larry Zonka, Bob Greasy, uh, Jim Langer, 
uh, and uh, certainly all who contributed to a great success over a short period of time. You know, there was the other thing, though, too, you know, and, and you and I have talked about this, the respect level of the team. It just wasn't, you know, it really wasn't until late in the season of that undefeated season where anybody was really taking note. Well, you know, that's true. And, um, again, I don't want to leave anyone out. Uh, Earl Morrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> played an instrumental role because we lose our Hall of Fame quarterback in Bob Greasy after four games. He goes down with a fracture in his ankle or something of that nature. Earl Morrow stepped in, but Don Shula had great foresight. He was uncomfortable with our backups as quarterbacks in the previous year or so, and um, Earl played for him right. in Baltimore. And... Uh, I affectionately look at Earl from the standpoint that uh, he was the greatest relief pitcher in the <laughs> NFL history. Yep. And uh, as I've indicated previously in my my thoughts, although he didn't have the handlebar mustache, <laughs> he was the rolly fingers yeah. <laughs> for our ball club. Yeah. Well, and you, 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 it's a great analogy <laughs> because the other guy he backed up was Johnny Unitas in That's Baltimore, correct. so he had, uh, and he was such a he was a consistent player. And Don once told me he says there was something about Earl you just know he's a winner. He will win for you. Yeah. I'm not looking at you know pure passing or his, his athletic skills. It was, he was a winner. Well, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. But in addition to that, coming in off the bench and to play at a high level and keep that team playing at a high level because he was a focal point as our quarterback. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very, very special. And uh, he was special in that sense in his era and playing in pro football. I don't think I've seen it since. No. And to emulate that same discipline that you were talking about Greasy having in terms of reading what the defense is giving you. Okay, I have another one that I'd like to know if it's true or not. Hmm. Is it true in the Super Bowl that year you were thrown a pass that was broken up by Cornell Green that was a play designed by President Richard Nixon? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, interestingly enough, the then President of the United States um, would spend time do periodically during the year down in the South Florida area. And uh, he contributed to... We were not successful. <laughs> but, I mean, he focused on what he thought we should do in certain situations and throwing the football. <laughs> and Coach Shula listened to him, a Washington football team fan? Well, he didn't listen to him. I don't know how many people – well, no, I was getting politically, but nevertheless. <laughs> uh, but uh, nevertheless, it didn't work for us in that situation. <laughs> well, you know – we, you know, Don Shula, and, I, and I'm such a big fan of Don Shula, as you know. You know, he was a, a, a disciplinarian, but he, he, he got you guys believing in each other and in the, in the rapid growth of the team, you know, going from such a young team to a winning team. You know, tell us a little bit about what the mystique of his aura was that he could convince. He was a young man. I mean, some of the players when he was in, coaching in Baltimore, Johnny Unitas was older than him, you know, when he was coaching Johnny Unitas. But he was, he was so, um, I don't know, uh, Believable because he, he he could convince you that it's the right thing. If you work hard, you'll win. Absolutely. And uh, as I recall, I would say he was Mr. Simplicity mm-hmm. in the sense that um, his objectives 
And what he had to say to us uh, was not complicated. It, uh, it involved hard work, discipline, and sacrifice. If those things can be a part of our makeup, we will win games. And um, had a unique way of certainly uh, convincing us. I mean, but as great leaders from my perspective, uh, he would do the things and wouldn't ask of us to do anything basically, although he wasn't out there blocking and tackling and so forth, basically that he wouldn't do. One vital point is Miami has a very tough climate during the summers. Uh, high levels of humidity, sunshine, temperatures ranging in the 90, mid-90 degrees, and not the ideal for working out and playing football. Uh, I think all of the players always dreaded to a certain extent running after practice, the conditioning drill after spending two and a half hours out in the hot sun and mm -hmm. humidity and tire. We had to run a conditioning drill that was called gases, the length of the field, right. 25 yards, 50 yards, 75 yards. We, we run them in a group. And uh, Don Shula asked us to do this. That, that was tough. That was a part of uh, the conditioning. But he always did it with us. Mm -hmm. And so when you find a leader who asks you to do tough things, but they're willing to do that with you, that resonates yeah. on players. Yeah. yeah. As huh. it, it's, I mean, it really is who he was. Yes. And again, being from Warren, Ohio, mm -hmm. and you knew Don Shula, you know, played for your Cleveland Browns. Sure. Uh, did, that, did that have an influence on you, you know, playing for a guy you knew had the same kind of roots as you? Well, from this standpoint, he did play for the Cleveland Browns, yes. And uh, Paul Brown, the late Paul Brown, was one of the greatest coaches in all of pro football, uh, certainly registered with the football world. And he was a former collegiate football coach and a high school football mm -hmm. coach in Ohio with winning at the highest levels. And so uh, Don Shula uh, represented that in that uh, he certainly had a very short career with the Cleveland Browns, but that was a part of his makeup. And that was what he brought to the previous uh, team that he coached in the Baltimore Colts, who were winners, mm -hmm. and uh, brought to Miami. And uh, Miami gave him a new opportunity because he had been unsuccessful in his first Super Bowl venture with the Baltimore Colts, but to take a team from scratch, and it was a expansion team out of the old American Football League, a team that was made up basically of cast-offs <laughs> from other ball clubs, stopped, and to, in a very short time, practically overnight, change it from this brief period in pro football for from a <laughs> real loser right. to the very top is really an amazing feat. And he did it, again, with, I say, the values. If you guys work hard, if you sacrifice, you dedicate yourselves, we, great things can occur. All right, Paul, before we let you go, you have said that even if you're not drinking champagne, this is an unlikely feat to be matched again. Can you tell us why you don't think we'll see another undefeated team in the National Football League? Well, what I really said is that um, it's possible. Certainly anything is possible. 
I think improbable to a degree, and I say this only in this respect, that um, all of the, some of the things that worked for us work against other teams in a manner of speaking. Um, we were in our 13th ball game of the year and playing against the New York Giants during that 1972 season. And uh, basically no one was paying attention to the fact that we were undefeated. Nobody. The, the media and the press and the world, and then we go into New York to play against the Giants, and then all of a sudden, voila, the New York media, the capital of the world. You know something? You know, this is the way they put it. You know something? These guys are undefeated. <laughs> it was, and so no one was paying attention. No one was saying week after week after week seven or after week 10, after week 13, that they're undefeated. The national press was not surrounding us down in Miami. You know, we only had one more game to play after that during the regular season. And uh, uh, against the Baltimore Coast, ironically, as I recall, we win that game and then we go to where we want to be to prove to the world that we weren't some rinky-dink team from the old AFL. We go to the playoffs. You must win in the playoffs or you go home. So, okay, we got to where we wanted to go to. We got there, and then we get to the final game against the Washington Redskins, as I recall, and I won't reiterate on that game. The only thing that I will say about that game, the final score was 14-7, to 7, but the game was not nearly yeah, that close. Right. And so we accomplished that feat. Now, the reason why it may be a little bit more difficult today to accomplish that feat is because as I said, if a team wins five straight games, the national media is there. <laughs> it's like a presidential event now. Who's going to equal that or surpass? Well, it can't be surpassed, but equal that event. And so I think players become distracted and so forth. So that's why it will be, in my opinion, a difficult feat to accomplish. And maybe one day they will drink champagne. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Gentlemen, it'll be a little bit difficult to top the great Paul Warfield, but we are now joined by two of his teammates who said that he tells a lot of tall tales. <laughs> Larry Little, Larry Zonka, who apparently have a story about a car dealership for us as the key to the undefeated season. Well, I think uh, the first steps that were ever taken towards that were completed at Edelin Buick very early in my career, and <laughs> very early in Larry Little's career. We, uh, I had banged up a car pretty badly, and it was the close of the 68 season, so I went down to Edelin Buick to get a bid on fixing the, the fender that had got misappropriated. <laughs> <laughs> and as I was going in the door, the glass door, there was a big door there, Larry Little was coming out. And we both hit the door at the same time, and I looked through the door at him, and I thought, I don't know who he plays for, but... You know, <laughs> we need him. <laughs> Make a long story short, we opened the door and introduced ourselves to each other and kind of kidded each other a little bit. And, but then I never said anything, but I left there. I never went in to get the car fixed or anything. I got back in the broken car and drove it down to 330 Biscayne Boulevard, went up to the sixth floor, talked to Joe Thomas, our personnel director. I busted in his office and said, does the name Larry Little mean anything to you? He said, yes, we're very close inside. I said, Joe, unless you can fly... You better sign him. <laughs> he said, how can you be so sure? I said, Joe, look at my eye. Like a big black eye from the last season. I said, if nothing else, I can hide behind him. <laughs> and that's where it started. Now, I had nothing to do with getting Larry Little over to the Miami Dolphins, and certainly his contract was taken care of. 
by Joe Thomas, and they were in the final throws of it. But it makes a great story because I was serious. I was <laughs> I needed some offensive linemen. Wait, so Larry Little are, is is it Larry Zonka that got Joe Thomas to kick in the extra money? I didn't get any extra money. <laughs> well, <laughs> but you still signed for There's the no $500? Such, no such no, thing no, as no. extra money in the NFL. <laughs> that, was, that was because of the trade from San Diego to uh, Miami. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, I was there at San Diego for two years. And I went down to England, and I, that's when I bumped into Zonk. And, and we've been together ever since. Right. Talk about together. What a team you had together. You know, that. We're, we're sitting here and went through this whole <laughs> dissertation with, with, with Paul. It is hard to believe it's been 50 years. I mean, it is just, you know, time flies. But to you guys, does it seem like just yesterday or does it seem like 50 years ago? Well, to me, it seemed like 50 years ago because we've lost so many guys off of that team. Oh, that's right. true. And, uh, you know, that's a feeling that you can never get over. Guys that you knew went out there and bust your asses with, and, uh, and now they're no longer with us to help celebrate the 50th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Do you, can you remember, can you think back now, was there a moment when you felt we've got something special? Was there one game? Was there one play? Was there something that made you think, I think this is a team that can do something? I quite honestly, and I'll jump out here and answer that, Larry, because it, when we heard that Don Shula was going to be our coach, I think was the when the embryo started to uh, move. Uh, at that point, when we heard that he was coming, we knew uh, his record and what he had done, or at least I did. I did too. And it, it was a thing where you knew things were going to change for the for the better. How how better? I didn't know, but and whether I'd be part of it, I didn't know. When I first met Don Shula, I was in his office because he wanted me to come in there because I had popped off in a meeting, and that's one thing he didn't tolerate. So when I went into the office, I, you know, he started on me, and I leaned. And in his office, you could say anything. When you closed the door, he was no longer General Eisenhower. You know, you didn't have to salute. You didn't. When you walked into his office, closed the door, back me up, Larry. If I'm if I'm lying, tell him. When he closed the door, he said, say what's on your mind. So I did. Yeah. And I got in his face, and he got in mine. And I said, I don't like you. And he said, I don't like you either. <laughs> I said, well, you're gonna, where are you going to trade me to? He said, I can't get enough for you, so you're stuck. <laughs> That's how it started. Now, from that, you know, he put little things up on the wall that said the winning edge, and, you know, you don't go through the motions and all these little sayings. And I made fun of those because I didn't understand them. I didn't know what he's talking about. But as time went on, now I do realize, and as time went on, we all started to realize how serious he was. And if we were going to stay around, how serious we had to be. And it paid off. You know, I remember the first time I met him, I went down to his press conference after it was over. And I walked up to him and I said, uh, hello, Coach Shula. My name is Larry Little. I'm your right guard. He looked at me. I was weighing 285 pounds at the time. He looked at me and said, how much do you weigh? <laughs> and I said, 285. And he walked off. There's another word to me. <laughs> so, how, how much did you get up to that season then? Oh, I got down got to. Down. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can tell what era. I, I, I we all it. got down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we heard from Paul Warfield how, and Larry, you've told the same story a number of times, you know, that Coach Shula worked you like dogs. 
But he also, when you were doing those gassers, he was running right there with you to show that you know he yeah. believed in. I think it was more than that. I think that the <coughs> camaraderie of the team is something that I might look at today because mm -hmm. it's guys are walking around with earphones on, got cell phones, and they don't music playing during practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, crowd noise. I can understand that a little bit, but anyway, uh, just the well, the general getting to know each other. I think Shuley used the weight. I think he believed in that and mm -hmm. gave you weights that he thought were should be. The, but I think he made him a little lower on some of the guys, like Garrow, your premium, the kicker. What difference does it make if he loses the pound? <laughs> <laughs> but Garrow was never practicing with the team. He's always off on his own. So yeah. it was an opportunity by getting us together the night before weigh-in and the morning of weigh-in where we had a little social order. We actually created a living room in the locker room, if you will. You used to be in the, in the uh, sauna. In the sauna and the hotel. I, I lived in the sauna. <laughs> in the corner of it, Mark Zonk's corner over there. That's where I was all and the time. And I had water pills to have get me now to the weight. <laughs> anyway, that, that idea of getting together... We didn't run off right after practice. We mm. stuck around, and it got to be a thing. And Shula acted like he was against all that. Yeah. But the fact of the matter was he realized that that camaraderie that would be, that would be born yeah. in that commiserating thing sitting in the sauna bitching about him right. <laughs> gave us some interaction that we otherwise wouldn't have had. Did you, did you feel any sense of, you know, he being from Ohio like you and, you know, he went to little John Carroll, you know, you know like Bethune-Cookman, it wasn't a very big school, Larry, oh, the other Larry. Did you, did you feel any sense of connection to the man with just having some similar backgrounds? Was there anything that, you know, clicked with you in that regard? Not really, because I didn't know what school he went to. <laughs> <laughs> Nor did you care. I, I was aware of that. Yeah. But uh, as far as being two kids that grew up in Ohio, we kidded about that a couple years later mm -hmm. during the course of the undefeated season, probably. Right. Okay. As close as I probably – I think we started to get close. We all had to salute and address him as head coach, and it was a very formal situation for 70 and 71. Then after we lost Super Bowl six. We really started to get to know him, and uh, you know when he said what he said after Super Bowl VI, we knew everybody had to buckle up because this was going to be him at his best, and it was. He had no design on undefeated, no. to my knowledge. What he had design on was getting back to the Super Bowl. He was 0 for 2 in Super Bowls, and people were going to die if he <laughs> had to get back there, you know, yep. any other way. And what he laid out was a, 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 a menu that led accidentally to an undefeated season. Sure. Because we, in fact, did everything he asked and did pay the price. And that's, you know, I'm not going to insult your intelligence. We didn't blow down the lane. We were finite several times, but somehow, some way, some one guy, sometimes Charlie Babb, Cleveland game, I go back to that all the time. You know, he's a backup guy. He's a rookie. He's, you know. We get mad at him if he asks questions in the meeting because we want to go have a beer, you know. <laughs> but Charlie was into it and saw something. And it turned out to be something that a rookie saw in the film that took it to a coach and it escalated into a victory yeah. that made the difference in an undefeated season. Thank now, you. how much more can every player yeah. be a member? And you talk about that. And, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, the, the starting quarterback, you know, jostling back and forth throughout the season with, with injuries. I mean, there's a lot of adversity to, to you guys getting there? Well, when Earl, when Bob was hurt against the Chargers, we knew we had to come, even come together even more as a team. For, for instance, me being a lineman, 
we knew Earl couldn't scramble and run around like Bob. So we had to really work hard to get, keep him clean. And ironically, though, Earl had the longest running touchdown that year <laughs> from scrimmage. <laughs> I threw two blocks on that. <laughs> and I'm slow. <laughs> Think about it. On a 37 yard touchdown, out of the back we had Zonk, Merck, Kick. Earl had the longest run of the team that year. <laughs> Larry, that had to be something for you. You know, uh, offensive linemen always say they like rug blocking. But you had three great backs back there. True. Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, Mercury Morris. What was it like having that backfield? Well, with Zonk, I knew I had to get my man out of the hole because he would put that big head in my back. <laughs> 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 with Merck, I knew I had to run because I was pulling a lot on sweeps. Right. And with Jim, Jim was just a tough running back that was outstanding catching the football coming out of the backfield and also with a great blocker. Larry, why was there no jealousy amongst all of you? 2,000-yard rushers, 1,000-yard receiver, why was the distribution so easy to make happen? The people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jim Kick and Mercury Morris, very different people, very yeah. different backgrounds, but a genuine will to win. Then they both liked each other because they were teammates. They never once in all that course ever said anything insulting to my knowledge about each other. They abused Coach Shula to death because, <laughs> and Shula loved it because he wouldn't want it any other way. Think about it because he was getting the best foot forward from both of them, but they both wanted more playing time, which is a natural thing. Kick, I don't know about playing time, but he just hated those 40-yard runs when we got down to the 10-yard line and they'd substitute. He was running distance there, and he didn't like that at all. But those two guys, <clears throat> had they not rose to the moment, rose to the occasion, would have caused a tremendous amount of confusion on our offense if, it, if they would have got against each other. But instead, they were both pointed about wanting the same thing, and they got to be a little closer, actually, by the, by the fact, rather than further apart. But that's a, that's a great team spirit building thing, and I was talking a moment ago when you were talking about Larry, and whether it was me, Jim Kick, or Mercury Morris standing on one side of that huddle and looking across, we had five to seven of the finest offensive linemen. And the way you tell that when you're a running back is when Bob Greasy's in the huddle, no one spoke. Earl Moore, no one spoke. Very solid thing, you know, you're getting the game play and it, no one spoke. But communication with your offensive lineman, as that quarterback's telling you the play and it's, they're calling your number and you're going up between your right guard and center and you look over and your right guard and center are both staring at you right in the eyes. <laughs> and both of them aren't blinking and they're doing their head a little bit in a yes thing like, Follow me is what they're saying. When you look across and you see your offensive lineman looking back at you, grinning and, and nodding their head, yes. Oh, buddy, you got you got the world by the ass. Pardon the pun, but that's it. There it is. In that in that scenario, I'll never forget because when you look across there and they're looking at the ground or they're glancing at you and kind of looking away, you know, when you're blocking Joe Green over there. <laughs> Bring it here, baby. There you go. <laughs> when, you, when you look across there and you're they're saying, bring it, what a great <laughs> feeling. What a great communication without a word being said. 
You know, that's another one of the things that Paul said to us is that he thinks it's going to be very hard to replicate an undefeated season because of all the attention. And that when you were in the midst of this, no one was really noticing that you were racking up these wins. Do you remember when you suddenly realized, hey, we haven't lost a game? Well, I knew we hadn't lost a game, but I didn't know, knowing that we had gone through the season 14-0, and I knew in order to reach our goal and getting back and winning the Super Bowl, we had to win the next three games. And this one came down to being undefeated, only undefeated team in history 50 years ago, and we're on top of that mountain, and no one can surpass us going 17-0. and they could only join us. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think about it, worry about it. I'm disappointed the champagne toast isn't true, though. Well, well the great goose is. <laughs> <laughs> we call each other and we celebrate. I don't know about the champagne glasses. You know, that was, champagne glasses and the 72 dolphins don't really go together. <laughs> but a, a, a mug is more, you know, a beer may be fit a lot more. Uh, I, I think that uh, certainly when when uh, New York Giants were playing New England Patriots in uh, what was the young man's name that caught the ball? David Tyree. And Tyree mm -hmm. caught that ball at the end of the game. Um, there was a lot of uh, celebration going <laughs> on. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, that brings it out. When it gets right down to the wire, when you get eight games or more into the season and all of a sudden there's one – team that's still going and looking strong and you know looks like they're going downhill everybody starts sitting up and clearing their throat and saying you know who's that playing wide receiver for them you want to start to know the names because you want to count down with them and that's when all that attention turns in as it did in 72 by the time we got through the regular season we were we were the top team on everybody's list to knock off certainly yeah. and that's it's the same today when you're the last one standing, everybody turns their attention a little more to you, which means they do a little more towards that effort. So it, uh, you know, it's you a different story. If you, if you lose the first game and then win them all, it's a little different story. Right. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, Larry, about each game seemed to have somebody rise to the occasion, you know, that there was, you know, it was not just this, you know, one superstar carrying the team or anything like that. The other thing that gets lost in this is that no-name defense. You know, you talk about no respect. That was a defense that was really playing great football. And, and you know, the other 50th anniversary celebration this year is the Immaculate Reception. And they, they ran into a buzzsaw in Miami. So, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, the respect thing that, that was going on. You know, we had a great defense that really didn't get the respect that they should have gotten until maybe the season was over. Because we had great players on the field. We had one guy, on, just look at it, one guy on that defense is in the Hall of Fame, Nick Bonacani. And we had other great players on that defense, but didn't get the fame that they should have. Well, everybody was talking about the Purple People Leaders, the Fearsome Foursome, uh, what was Pittsburgh called at the time? Iron Curtain. The Iron Curtain. Still Curtain. Curtain. Still Curtain. Iron Curtain is the Russians. And Iron Curtain. <laughs> but, you know, our defense was great players that didn't – and Pussy had a great, great – probably the best defensive coordinator mm. in the history of the game in Bill Armstrong. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but, you know, they, they didn't get the uh, credit they deserved. Yeah. Well, I Can I make an observation? Yeah. 50 years later, 
Larry Zonka is still relying on his offensive lineman. When he doesn't want to answer a question, he goes yeah, like this. And he expects <laughs> him to think about that. I did. He keeps doing it. <laughs> you know what I think made the, got the attention of the uh, defense was, the, I, I don't want to use a brand name, but there was a beer commercial, and the Nick Bonacani's in the bar, and they're talking about this, the, the team, and somebody says, hey, aren't you, aren't you? And he goes, Nick Bonacani. And the fan says, no, 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 not him, not him. Aren't you, uh, you know, it's like, Playing on the the whole idea of no respect, can't get the Rodney Dangerfield of football. <laughs> what a lot of people don't realize also that that year, we were number one in offense, mm -hmm. number one in defense, and number one in special teams. We were a complete team, not just an offensive football team, not just a defensive football team, and not just the special team football team. We were a complete team at all three phases of the game. Well, wouldn't you have to be to go undefeated? I mean, think about it. I mean, the, the odds of going undefeated are, are so slim to begin with. You have to be darn near perfect. And we were. Is there something about Canton that stands out? Your favorite part of being here outside of enshrinement? Well, I'm very familiar with Canton because it's 50 miles uh, a little bit south of my hometown. And as a scholastic athlete many, many years ago, competed against the Canton Public School System's athletic teams. But coming back to this city and coming back for these very special events that are a part of the Hall of Fame uh, weekend celebration always means a little bit more to me. Well, I would say the parade. <laughs> 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 well, you know, when you, the year I went in and uh, Don Shula introduced me, that was be something I'll never forget. And in the parade, he was sitting next to me. That's when I got kind of teary-eyed. Everybody called you, Larry, Larry. I got, and that was my favorite moment, other than going in and making my speech that day. I would say, <clears throat> quite frankly, that uh, having grown up here in Ohio and reading and hearing about, uh, as a junior high and high school football player, about the fact that pro football started here and uh, you know Canton was right next door and it was not the celebrated thing back then I'm talking about the late 50s early 60s and then to hear that uh, they were going to actually build a facility here and there was going to be an actual game played here every year and so on was very exciting and that's why we we came down to answer your question directly the people of Canton historical significance generation to generation has grabbed here has taken hold here and people grow up uh, here knowing that the halls here and appreciating it every once a year and and they totally seemingly just look forward to it it's sort of like New Orleans with the big celebrations that go on there it's become Canton's um, middle name mm -hmm. and what a what a great thing for a small town in ohio that uh, has a now a nearly a hundred year well a hundred year plus her, uh, history yep. of that happening it's a it's a thing they take pride in here i guess is what i'm trying to say and uh, we as players get to come back and see them and it's kind of fun well larry i would follow that up with um you know the the development you were here when when you know we broke ground and we were building the, the facility, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and, and now the development around, you know, the uh, Hall oh. of Fame Village, and, and can you just speak to that and, and the growth? Uh. Well, the growth is just, uh, what that's like the Miami Dolphins training facility, you know, we used to go down and train <laughs> in the old baseball stadium when Larry and I were, 
First with the Dolphins, we, we practiced in the baseball stadium. Well, I played high school football games. <laughs> <laughs> that was our facility. Now they have this sprawling, my gosh, just a jillion-dollar outfit. And Canton hasn't changed as much in that direction. The facilities certainly here at the Hall have. But the rest of Canton is pretty much like the way I remember it, you know, different parts of it, certainly. It's, it's been growing and expanding, of course, but at the same time, Parts of it have stayed the same. And I commented to Audrey, my wife, on the way over here from the farm, I have a farm east of here, that the going driving through the country looks the same as it did 50 years ago when I used to come here, 60 years ago. And, uh, but the enthusiasm of the people is still, is still the same. Here we are in the middle of this season, and Joe, we almost thought we were going to get an undefeated team, maybe yeah. kind of sort of. The Eagles started 7-0. and why is it so hard? It is just so hard. There's such great talent in the National Football League, and I don't call it parity. I just call it great talent. There's that many great athletes in the National Football League. But there's so many other obstacles for a team to go undefeated. The season, the length of the season, the length of the playoffs, and this thing I call instant replay. It can change the fate of a game just by catching something that might not have been caught by a game official with, with just his eyes. And we have to be very careful because, you know, we are the Pro Football Hall of Fame, so we represent other leagues as well. And a league that existed from 1946 to 1949 was called the All-America Football Conference. And that league gave birth to the Cleveland Browns and the San Francisco 49ers. And the league was absorbed by the NFL or merged with it after the 1949 season. Now, in 1948, it was those remarkable Cleveland Browns that went undefeated in the regular season and in the postseason. And not only that, in the four years that that league existed, the Browns were the champions of that league each of those four years. So I give kudos to the accomplishments of the Cleveland Browns in 1948. And they were great players on that team. They had Dante Lavelli, who was a friend, Miriam Motley, Bill Willis, Otto Graham, Max Speedy. They were just a great football team. And Donnie Lavelli used to hound me. He lived in Cleveland. He'd come to Canton often. He would hound me about, how come nobody ever talks about the Browns' undefeated season? We were undefeated in the, in the regular season and the postseason, too. Well, it was just because everybody remembers NFL history. The All-America Football Conference, four years, 1946 to 49, undefeated in 48, a great football team. On that note, everybody, this has been Football Heaven. This has been a look at the 1972 undefeated Dolphins team. Thank you for John and Joe for joining us, and we will see you next week in Football Heaven. Visit Canton and experience Hall of Famers' hometown favorites for yourself. Plan your trip to America's playing field. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please check out the Hall's other exciting podcast, The Mission. For more Football Heaven episodes and bonus content, please visit Hall of Fame Village Media and Pro Football Hall of Fame social media.